All right, there's my beautiful family. Here they are. Um, yeah, so uh, as, as John said, we were here at Alpine uh, for many, many years, and, uh, and several years ago, God called us to Ethiopia. So it is super fun to be back here and see all these wonderful, familiar faces, and it's amazing. We can be gone for a long time and come back, and uh, it's just really encouraging to see God at work here in so many ways and to see how people have, have grown and, and changed. I was just sitting there watching Luke lead worship. I remember sitting, he was right there, I think on his first Sunday at Alpine here, and I have to preach. I remember talking to him, and uh, now, I don't know how many years it's been later, seeing here he's married to Kaylee and, and leading worship, and he's got all this hair now. And, um, but, uh, but anyway, it's, it's just really encouraging to come back and see how God has been at work and what he's been doing and uh, to be a part of Alpine. Um, uh, just real quick, uh, it, just in terms of introduction, uh, as, as John said, we are missionaries in Ethiopia. If you have no idea where that is, here's a little map for you in the world. It's in East Africa, near the Horn of Africa. Uh, Ethiopia is a really unique country in, in many ways. It's the, uh, the second largest country in Africa by population. Almost 120 million people uh, live there. And it's in sort of a unique place in Africa. It's sort of nestled between the, uh, the Middle East and Africa. So they don't really identify as Africans, even though they're in Africa, but they also kind of identify with the Middle East. They're surrounded by primarily uh, the Arab world, by Yemen, Somalia, Sudan, and so forth. So it's a really unique uh, culture in so many ways, really unique um, identity, unique religiously. Uh, about half the country is Muslim, and the other half would identify as some form of Christian, although for the vast majority of those uh, Christians, uh, it's you know, primarily a cultural thing. They have really no idea what it means, or it's just sort of a, a generational thing uh, in, in their family. And so uh, it's a place that has a tremendous spiritual need. There are uh, almost 30 what are considered unreached people groups that more than 50 million people that live in communities with no gospel witness, meaning they have no access to hear the gospel. And so that's why um, myself and many other missionaries are there trying to bring the good news of Jesus. Ethiopia, as you might know, is also a very uh, poor place, very economically challenged historically has been through a lot of really difficult times, uh, which leads to a lot of uh, need, but also a lot of, again, opportunity to share God's love in a practical way. So um, I just want to say uh, thank you to all of you who have been a part of supporting this ministry. Uh, there's so many awesome things going, uh, going on there, and we really feel privileged to be Alpine missionaries serving there. We couldn't be there without you. And uh, we really uh, genuinely appreciate Alpine as a church and so many of you as individuals who support us and pray for us and encourage us. And truly, we are uh, incredibly blessed to be able to serve there in Ethiopia and be the hands and feet of, of Jesus uh, working with Alpine Church there on the ground. And it's a, it's a privilege. I'd love for you to continue to pray for us. Um, as I mentioned, Ethiopia is going through a lot right now. There's a civil war going on in Ethiopia. There's a lot of political unrest, some very significant and, uh, ethnic tension, tribalism that's causing all sorts of violence. I'll talk about that a little bit later, but uh, Ethiopia needs a lot of prayer. And so we'd really encourage you to pray for Ethiopia, and uh, we'd love for you to pray for our family. And uh, we'll, we'll be around after the service out in the lobby if you wanted to say hi, we'd love to meet you. We have a little prayer card we can give you with our little picture on it and just to remind you to pray for us and for Ethiopia. But uh, again, thank you so much. It is really a, a privilege to be able to be here today and, and again to share God's word. It's like, it uh, feels great to be back in this pulpit that I preached. Thumbs or for so many years, it feels fun being back back home here. So, 
And I'm excited to continue on and, and really wrap up this series we've been going through in the book of Galatians. I hope you've enjoyed this. I, I love a series where we just get to go through a book of the Bible chapter by chapter. And, and man, uh, and hopefully you've been reading along like we challenge you to do. Uh, there is so much in each one of these chapters. There's no way we could cover everything in, in every chapter. But we are trying to hit sort of the big themes and the big highlights uh, each week in each chapter. And today we're going to be wrapping that up and seeing where all of this is going really, which is the idea that God wants uh, this, this gospel message not to just be something that's up here in our heads, not just some interesting information, but what God wants is for his truth to transform our lives. You know, I was, I was thinking about this and reflecting back many, many years ago when I was a young pastor back in the Chicago area. Before I was married, I was getting ready to do a, a, a wedding on a Saturday. And I remember it was Friday, and I'm like, okay, i got to find my suit. And uh, I, I didn't wear a suit that often, so, you know, weddings and funerals kind of a thing. And so I was going, trying to find my suit to get it ready for the next day. And I'm, I'm digging in the closet, and I can't find it anywhere. And then I discover it had fallen off at some point and was crumpled in a ball on the corner covered in dust bunnies. And the corner of my closet, and I'm like, oh man. And so I, I pick it up, and it just looks nasty. It's covered in, in dust, and it's all wrinkly. And I'm like, I gotta do a wedding tomorrow. I can't do this. And so I'm all freaked out. Uh, but then I remembered there is an, a dry cleaner place down the street from where I lived. And I would never go to dry cleaners, you know, in my 20s. I didn't even know what that was really. But I knew there was a dry cleaner place, and it was called Next Day Cleaner. And I thought, well, perfect. Today's Friday, and I need the suit the next day on Saturday. So I go in there with my ball of a suit, and I, I hand it to the guy, and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I said, I've got a wedding tomorrow, and so I need to get this clean for tomorrow. And he says, oh, uh, I can have it ready by Thursday. I said, well, no, tomorrow, Saturday. I need it tomorrow. He's like, oh, we can't do that. I said, literally the name of your store is Next Day Cleaner. He's like, oh, yeah, that's our name, but... We don't actually do that. And I thought, wow, that's uh, super depressing. And uh, so I ended up borrowing one of my, my roommate's uh, suit who was about six inches shorter than me. And so I, I looked like um, Tommy Boy, uh, you know, the fat guy in a little suit. You know, if you ever, uh, you can watch that movie. You're too young. Most of you college kids know that movie. You should look it up. But um, so anyway, but with that stuck in my mind of, of how often maybe we could do that same thing. As believers, where we take on the name of Christ, but we don't actually do that. We call ourselves Christians, but we don't actually live like it. And this, I think, is one of the challenges that the Apostle Paul is bringing to us in the book of Galatians, especially as we get near the end. What he's trying to say is this gospel message of Jesus plus nothing that is meant to transform your life in some very real ways ways. So just to sort of recap, you know, we've been looking at uh, for the last six weeks the book of Galatians. In the first four weeks, it was sort of the theology. It was really recapping what it means to, to understand the gospel. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus, you know, some good works here and there. It is Jesus plus nothing. That came out of uh, the Apostle Paul. He had started this church in Galatia, and this group of people called the Judaizers had come in, and they were altering the gospel message, saying, hey, Jesus is awesome, but not quite enough. You need a little more than Jesus. You need to add to it your good works. And Paul is saying, no, absolutely not. The formula is Jesus plus nothing. 
So that's what he spent the first four weeks talking about. And then these last two weeks, uh, the last two chapters, he, he, he moves from talking about the theology to the implications of it. What does this mean for our life? Now that you understand this gospel formula of Jesus plus nothing, what does that mean for your life? And so that's what we started by talking about last week. We looked at, uh, talked about the fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh and how those compare and contrast. And, and this week we are talking about this idea of new creation. That when God comes into our life, when we put our faith in Him, we become brand new people. And this new creation, it affects everything. Now again, because it does affect everything, there are endless things that the Apostle Paul could have written about and talked about, but he chose a few very specific things to address in this book. Uh, And again, this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These were issues that felt really important uh, to him, and so this is the the practical things that he wrote about, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, just three things, three specific areas where the gospel transforms our life. And, whoop, sorry, I'm having a hard time. I'm like a rookie up here going back here. It's like I've never done this before. There we go. Back to the book of Galatians. Remember that book? There we go. I swear I didn't do that. There we go. Are we both trying to control it? Is that the problem? There we go. All right. Sorry about that. (laughs) So here's the first thing. And we're talking about how the gospel transforms our lives. Here's the first area that God gives us that he transforms us, and that is relationally. God wants to transform how we relate specifically to other believers. And here's the point we're going to look at, that true believers gently and humbly help people when they fall into sin. You see, we shouldn't be surprised that when the Bible starts talking about how the gospel transforms our lives, it talks about relationships, because relationships are our justinships. If you're married with your spouse, with your family, with your neighbors, with your co-workers, with your friends, with all these people, we are constantly in relationship with other people. And if you remember last week when we talked about how uh, the flesh works in our life, and then versus how the Spirit works in our life, and, and the Apostle Paul lists what he calls the fruit of the Spirit, if you remember the majority of those things were relational in nature. They show up in the context of how we treat other people. And so we shouldn't be surprised when he talks about how do we relate to one another. But he's going to talk about something kind of specific here. He's going to talk here now about how do we relate to other believers when they fall into sin. And so look what it says now in Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Here we go. It says this. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into that same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. What he says here is that if you are a follower of Christ, you have a responsibility to help other people who are followers of Christ to grow and mature in their faith, specifically when they fall into sin. You see, the reality is all of us, even though we have been made new creations, we have this new life, we also struggle with sin. We also have this thing the Bible calls the flesh that is at work in our life that sort of is pulling us back to those old ways. It's a struggle for everyone. And so what the Bible says is we need each other's help. 
Now, in this verse, you'll recognize there, there are kind of two parties involved here that he describes. He talks about the person over here, the believer who has been overcome by sin. Then the other party here is the person who is godly. And the person who is godly or spiritual, they are supposed to help this person over here. And so you think of these two characters, but let me just remind you up front that at any point, you could be either one of these people. It's not like you get to a point in your life where you're no longer this guy ever over here. All of us can sometimes fall into sin. And all of us, if you're a follower of God, you can have some maturity in your life. So don't think that, okay, I'm in this category or that category. God wants us to be over here more and more. But at any time, any one of us could fall into being in this category. Now, this category over here describes believers who are, who are overcome with sin, who, have, who are struggling deeply with sin. Now, this is not the kind of just normal, everyday sin that, that he's talking about here that we all deal with on a regular basis. It's just sort of the, the daily grind of our life of trying to follow God and work on those things that we need to, to grow in. He's talking about when somebody really is, is struggling deeply here, when they've really become overwhelmed, overcome by their sin, and they need some help. Often when you've become overcome by sin, the biggest problem you have is even recognizing that you have that sin. Because we have a tendency to kind of pretend like it's not there. You become so comfortable with it, maybe familiar with that sin. You've just chosen this path, and you're not even willing to acknowledge that it is sin. And so in those moments, that's how God has designed the body of Christ, not to let us just be off on our own struggling, but to have brothers and sisters come alongside us to give a helping hand. As much as we might not want that because we would rather do it ourselves, we'd rather withdraw, we might not, again, even recognize that we need help. We need those brothers and sisters to come alongside us. And so what God does is he called these people, it says, who are godly to come and help. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean these people over here, in order to help someone, you've got to be perfect. You have to have all your stuff together. You can't have ever sinned yourself. You have to be in a really perfect place. If that was who did it, then, then nobody would ever be able to help anyone else because none of us are perfect. But what he's talking about here are, are people who are, by God's grace, walking in a place where they are consistently honoring God with their life. They still have their own stuff they're dealing with. We're still imperfect over here, but you are doing your best to try to honor God and pursue him. You don't have any open rebellion in your life. The Bible says if that is you and you have a brother or a sister in Christ over here and you see them being overcome by sin, you have a responsibility to come alongside them and try to help them. Notice what it says there, to help them get on the right path or literally to restore them. So your role, if you're the person over here and you see this guy over here, it's not just to sort of like sit back and, and pretend like there's nothing wrong or sort of enable that and say, oh, it's fine. And your job is also not to condemn them and come alongside and say, I can't believe you rotten sinner. You are so miserable. And try to make them feel bad about them. You're not supposed to either just be sort of uh, pretending like it's not a problem or condemning and judgmental. What are you supposed to do? Well, it tells us right there, you're supposed to come alongside them and gently and humbly restore them. We're supposed to be gentle and kind, not with harsh words and meanness and anger and condemning, and also humbly recognizing, I don't want to be arrogant or judgmental here because, as the expression goes, there but by the grace of God go I. Any one of us could find ourselves, and even warns us there, don't fall into that same trap yourself. 
So we have to do this gently and humbly, recognizing it could be any one of us. Now, here's the the challenge in this. We all say, okay, that, that seems pretty obvious, but here's the problem. Nobody really likes to be on either end of that equation. Real, let's just be honest here. When you're that guy, when you're, when you're struggling and overwhelmed with sin, how many of us like it when someone comes and confronts us? Nobody likes that. Again, I've been in that position, and I don't like someone calling out my stuff. I'd rather just live in my little ignorant bliss, or I've, I'm choosing this, I'm just going to continue to choose it. I want to do that. So nobody likes being called out. And also on this end, nobody really likes being the one to call someone else out, do we? Because on one hand, we feel like, well, I don't want to be mean, you know, I don't want to be that guy that looks like a judgmental jerk or something. And also, you, I know we all tend to think, and gosh, man, I've got my own stuff. I'm not perfect. Who am I? Surely there's somebody more godly than me, and they'll do it. Surely there's somebody that's, you know, closer to them, and, and they'll take on this role of doing that. So nobody really likes this. And that, I think, is why the Apostle Paul starts this chapter by reminding us of this responsibility. And here's why he does this, because this is real love. If you really love somebody, you want what's best for them, right? And if you see they're living in sin, they've been overwhelmed by sin, we know that's not what's best for them. You know that they are walking down a path that is going to lead to pain and misery and disappointment, so why would you let them continue on in that path? If you really love somebody, you should care about them enough to try to point them toward grace, to try to restore them to that point to be where God wants them to be, where they will thrive. So what we really want for people is to live in what we've called the sweet spot of grace. We've talked about this throughout the whole series, you know, that on one side you have, the, uh, uh, over here you can have sinfulness, where people just sort of like live and do whatever they want. On the other side over here you have legalism, where people feel like I have to work, work, work to try to make God happy with me. And both of those are ditches on the side of the road that will mess you up. But really what God wants for us is to live in this, this, this sweet spot of grace, where you recognize humbly that you are imperfect, but that God still loves you. Where you recognize how deeply flawed you are, but yet God has chosen to love me and forgive me, so I want to live to honor him. And that, that spot of grace is where we all want to live. That's where we thrive, and that's where we as Christians should be trying to help people not be on either side, living in legalism or living in sin, but try to get back to that place of grace. If you really love someone, that's what we want for them. Here's how uh, one commentator describes as a great uh, definition when he, uh, he says this. In just a minute. Oh, there. He says, he says uh, Christians should restore the person who has fallen into sin. The verb used here is a medical term used for setting a fractured bone. What is wrong in the life of the, fall, of the fallen Christian must be set straight. So the word here literally is sort of referring to like when a bone is broken. If you see someone with a broken bone, you don't just say, well, hope it gets better. You try to encourage them to get it set right because that's what a loving person would do. 
You know, I was thinking about this uh, earlier this year. Um, my son, Zach, who's here in the blue shirt, he is my fun-loving, sort of reckless child that will just go and do anything. And at one point, uh, where we live uh, near our house, there's this big sort of concrete drainage ditch right in front of our house. And he was uh, riding a bike down the hill and uh, crashed his bike into the ditch and, and slams his toe really hard against the concrete and came up whining. He's, he's, he's in all kinds of pain. And it was really interesting watching the different reactions to poor Zach's pain. Now, my reaction as his father is, you're fine, suck it up. And that's very loving, I know. But my my reaction was, he's going to be fine, he's probably overreacting, just deal with it, Zach. Come on, shake it off, son, like, be a man. You know, that's that's my reaction. Other kids that were there that that live nearby, they're sort of laughing at Zach, making fun of him, you know, I can't believe he did that sort of a thing, he's so crazy. But then there's, there's one godly person among us, my wife, and uh, she comes along. She's like, Zach, what's wrong? She's very concerned, and she said, let's go, let's go talk. There's a doctor that lives next door to us. Let's go have the doctor look at it. I'm like, he's fine. He just needs to suck it up and be a man. And she's like, no, let's have the doctor look at it. Well, sure enough, he had broken his toe. And uh, if, if it had been, I had it my way, the poor kid had sat there and suffered for who knows how long with a broken toe, and those other kids in the compound would have had more fun just making fun of him, but, but somebody actually loved him enough to say, hey, I think something is wrong here, and I love you so much, I want to get this taken care of. And that, I think, is the kind of attitude we should have when we see believers fall, when we see them stuck in, in unhealthy, habitual patterns of sin when they've been overcome by sin. We don't make fun of them, and and you don't say, ah, they're fine, they'll deal with it. We lovingly come alongside them. We want to help them get that bone set straight so they can thrive in who God has made them to be. So that's the first thing, is we we talk about how the gospel transforms us. It, It transforms how we love one another, even being willing to confront in the face of sin. Well, here's the next way that the gospel transforms us. Next area is, it is, uh, sorry, I'm really struggling here this morning. I live in Africa. We don't have this kind of fancy stuff there, so go back there to my point. There we go. The transformation is financial. True believers give to the needs of the local church. Now, I know what probably some of you are thinking, here we go. Here's the preacher up there talking about money again. I know this is kind of a bait and switch thing. Come to church, all talking about Jesus, and all of a sudden they start talking about money and how typical for the preacher missionary guy to be up there talking about money. But here's the deal. We're talking about it because the Bible talks about it. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about money quite a bit, and he takes his cue from Jesus who talks about money a lot. Here's a little Bible fun fact for you. Did you know that Jesus talked about money more than any other single topic in the New Testament? Jesus talked about money more than he talked about love or prayer or hope or being nice. He talked about money. Now, why? Is it because Jesus needed some cash? Why was that? The reason why is because Jesus understood how closely Uh, Money is tied to our heart. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. You see, our heart always follows our money. And Jesus understood that, and so that's why he always talks about it. It is deeply connected. So it makes sense that as the Apostle Paul wants to talk about how the gospel transforms our lives, he's going to talk about this issue of money. So here's what he says, uh, starting in verse 6. 
Sorry, I swear I'm not hitting it six times. There we go. It says this. It says, uh, those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. Therefore, uh, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. So, Paul identifies uh, two actions here that, that are these financial implications of a transformed life. One, it says you should provide materially, not just material, all good things, which includes material, but other things, with those who teach you the Word of God. And two, you should be generous whenever you can where there are people in need, especially, it says, with those who are a part of the family of faith. You see, this is rooted in this this underlying principle that we have to recognize as believers, everything we have is ultimately from God. All of our money, I I get it, you work for it, but God's the one who gave you the ability to work. God's the one that's given you that mind and that body and that ability to work. So everything we have ultimately is from God. And what he wants us to do to acknowledge that is give a portion of it back to him. And the way you do that practically is by giving to support his work in this world, by doing things to build up his kingdom in this world. And the main way you do that is through God's primary institution in this world, which is the local church. The the local church is God's design. We didn't come up with it. Jesus is the one that said, I will build my church. And one of the things that we are called to do is to support the work of the local church, but also other things that are kingdom building in this world. So first and foremost, you give to the local church, but then you also should give to ministries in your community here that are kingdom oriented, that are kingdom building, and toward expanding the kingdom of God overseas, like toward missions and missionaries. See, these are all practical ways that you can give to support the local church and to support the work of God in this community and around the world. Now, again, this is always a little bit awkward. Uh, It's kind of an awkward verse to talk about when you're the Bible teacher. And you read the verse that says, hey, you should give money to your Bible teacher, right? It's a little weird to get up and, and say that. You know, and if I'm uh, were in your shoes, I'm naturally kind of a suspicious person. I'm naturally like, what's, what's this guy's angle? What's he trying to get at here, you know? And especially when something kind of sounds like fishy, it could, it could easily sound self-serving for a Bible teacher to get up and read this verse that says you should give to those that teach the Bible. In fact, Martin Luther, some of you know Martin Luther, he was one of the, the, the father of the Protestant Reformation going back, you know, 500 years. Uh, He said this about this passage. He said, Now this passage is meant to benefit us as ministers, but I must say I do not find much pleasure in explaining these verses. I am made to appear as if I am speaking for my own benefit. So Martin Luther was uncomfortable talking about this, so am I. So just please understand that it's it's, it's weird. uh, So what I would encourage you to do is don't just take my word for it. As with anything that ever gets taught from this pulpit or any other, never just take the preacher's word for it. Look it up yourself. Do the research yourself. Look at God's word. and Dig into it and see what you see it says there. But I think what you will discover is that over and over again there's this principle in the Bible that the body of Christ is called to materially support the church, the work of God in the world uh, all over the place. And don't forget that second part as well. It says we should give financially to support other people who are in need, especially those who are part of the family of faith. 
The context here is the Apostle Paul is probably talking about uh, the offering that he took up for the church in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts chapter 15. He references that later. Uh, but there was the, the church in Jerusalem was a very poor, struggling church. And so one of the things Paul was doing was going around collecting offerings from churches in more wealthy areas to support those believers who were struggling. The believers in Jerusalem were particularly struggling because of the, the religious persecution that they faced. And so many of them lost jobs or kicked out of their, their homes and families for following Jesus. And so they were in a very difficult spot. And so Christians came along as these other believers, their brothers and sisters in Christ, were facing hardship and they gave in very sacrificial ways. And we're called to do the same thing today. When we see people in need. It says, especially those who are part of the family of faith, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be attentive to those practical needs that we see and be ready to help. Now, again, in my own life, uh, long before I was ever a pastor or a missionary, long before I was one of the people being supported by the body of Christ, I was taught this. And I'm thankful because this became part of one of my own spiritual disciplines of, of giving on a regular basis to the body of Christ and to giving to ministries and to giving to missionaries. And still now, even though our family as missionaries, we live on the support of the body of Christ, this still applies to us. And so we still give financially. We still give financially to Alpine Church because it's our home church in America. We give financially to our church in Ethiopia. We give financially to support missionaries that we, that we, that we know of around the world. We do things to help out. In our context, we live in a very a poor community, and so there are constantly practical needs in front of us, and we try to give to help those practical needs whenever we can. Now, I can tell you, though, that this isn't always easy. Uh, it's hard because I'm just as selfish as the next guy. And I would much rather have all that money to myself. But as a way of recognizing everything we have comes from God. Of course, I want to give back to God and recognize my dependence on him by supporting his work in the world. Again, re remembering that God doesn't need our money. We don't give because God is somehow going to go broke. We give because, one, it honors God and also protects our heart. It protects our heart from being caught up in the things of this world and from being selfish. So let me encourage you to, to honor God in how you do that. But, and also it's interesting here, in the middle of these verses about money, there's this famous passage about sowing and reaping. It's sort of caught right in the middle there. It says, now don't be misled. You can't mock the justice of God. You'll always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Now this is a, a pretty famous passage, and we don't always think of it in terms of money, but it's nestled right in the middle of this passage about money. I don't think that, that Paul is just changing the subject here all of a sudden. I think what he's talking about here is this, this principle, that if we invest all of our time and energy, if we sow all of our money into things that are just about us, if all of our money is focused on pursuing our own pleasures in this life, that actually leads to emptiness. But if we will sow and invest in things that really matter, spiritual things, eternal things, that's what actually brings life and joy. Again, that doesn't mean that you have to never enjoy anything in this life, that you have to be some sort of aesthetic monk who never enjoys Starbucks or anything like that. But what it means is, first and foremost, we need to have this heart that is not going to allow itself to be corrupted by the flesh, by our selfishness, but instead we are going to give to God. 
So we've seen how the gospel transforms our relationship. It transforms our money. One last thing here quickly I want us to see, and this is maybe most fundamental, and it's this, that it transforms our identity. This transformation affects our identity. Individuals become new creations who together become the people of God. Remember the context of Galatians, there's this group of Judaizers, and, they, and their whole thing was, hey, if you're really part of God's people, you have to follow these rules over here, circumcision and food laws and all these things. And, and once you do those external things, then you're really one of the good guys, then you're really on God's team. And Paul's coming along, and he's saying, no, no, that's not how it works at all. That's not how you become part of God's family. What matters is if your heart is transformed by the gospel. And so he says this. He says, there we go. It says, it doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. It's always weird talking about circumcision in church. I know, but that's what the Bible is about here. What, what, what counts, it says, is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. It says, when you embrace the gospel of salvation, that a gospel of Jesus plus nothing, you put your faith in him alone, you become a new creation, a new person, and don't miss how powerful that is. It doesn't say that you become like an upgraded version of yourself, like Bob 2.0, right? You are not like a slightly improved version of your old self. You are brand new. You have a new identity in Christ that changes everything. So Paul says in another place in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, uh, this means that whoever belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old has gone and behold, the new has begun. It says when you put your faith in Christ, you are not known by, marked by, held back by, identified by your old life and your brokenness and your sin and your failure. No, now you are known by and marked by and propelled by and identified by being a part of Christ. This is your new identity. It changes everything. And it changes you not only individually, but it brings you into a new family. He keeps talking about the family of God, the people of God. Part of that newness is we are part of this, this new family. It changes everything. And this is something that when we live in that reality, it has a lot of practical ramifications. You know, I'm just going to be uh, kind of bold here. I'm like, now I'm the, the, just the visiting guy. So you can be more bold when you're the visiting guy. But here's what I've noticed. Sitting over in Ethiopia, observing things in America, we've become pretty divided here. And the church has become really divided here. Uh, just observing all of this strife and division over these last couple of years, it's, it's really intense to watch. And even as I look out at this room here this morning, we have a pretty diverse group here of ages, I imagine of income levels, of ethnic identity, of political stances, of beliefs about COVID. I'm sure there are vax and no vax people here, mask and no max people here, and, and all these other things. And that's a really beautiful thing, actually, that we're all these diverse things that we come together. Uh, that's how it's supposed to be. But here is one of the big problems I see in the body of Christ. When all those other things take precedence over our identity in Christ. 
And this is not how God intended for it to be. What the Bible says is part of your new identity is you are first and foremost a child of God, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and that should define everything else, and that should be the lens through which you view all of these other issues. And so you should be a Christian first and an American second, or a Republican or a Democrat second, or a Vax or no Vax second, or a Prius or an F-250 second, you know, whatever it is. All those other things that divide us, those come after our identity in Christ. And when we don't live like that, it leads to this division and it leads to heartache and brokenness and destruction. And let me tell you, it it only gets worse. I can say that give firsthand testimony, I live in a place where it is incredibly ethnically divided where there is this amazing ethnic tension in Ethiopia. Ethiopia has about 82 different ethnic groups that live within its borders, and they do not like each other. There is incredible, deep-seated, centuries-old tension between them, and sadly, it's no different in the body of Christ. Churches become primarily, this church will be identified, well, that's all people from that tribe go to that church, and this church people from that tribe, and they don't even like each other. They don't even talk to each other. And it, it brings... I think it breaks the heart of God when he sees his church divided like that. And what it leads to is violence and brokenness. And you might think, well, that's never going to happen here. I'm telling you, that's the road we're on. And I see it every day in Ethiopia where I live. Not that long ago, I was uh, speaking at a church, and we went to this church, and I was helping to do sort of a reconciliation there, because in this community, one group of Christians had attacked and, uh, over political things and were burning down houses of other believers in the same town who were from a different tribe. So literally, guys from this church were attacking guys from that church because of their tribal ethnic identity. And so we were brought in to try to help navigate through this, and I remember... Uh, in this church, and there were people from both of these ethnic groups in this meeting I was in, and I, I just grabbed one of the guys, I pulled him up on the stage. I'd never met this man before, and we didn't even speak the same language. He's from a different tribe. I didn't know his language, and through an interpreter, I said, hey, how you doing? What's your name? And, and I got to know him, and, and, uh, and I said, you know, I asked him, I said, are you, are you a, a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? He said, yes. I said, let me tell you something. And I kind of told this, this story. I said, imagine if we're here in the middle of rural Ethiopia and, and an American guy walks in the back door. I'm like, oh my gosh, you, you never see Americans in Ethiopia. And imagine I see this guy come in the back door and, and I'm like, hey, how you doing? And all of a sudden we can talk and we share the same language. And I find out he's from Utah, my home state. And I think, oh my gosh, you're from Utah. Oh my, can you believe it? And don't you miss fry sauce and all this stuff? And so we're talking about America. And I find out, oh my gosh, he's a Seahawks fan because he's really godly. So he's a Seahawks fan, right? And so and, and, and we, we start talking. We have all these things in common. We like the same music. We're from the same place. We speak the same language. We like the same food, all that stuff. But then I find out that guy that I just met, he's not a believer. Now, here's what I said. And I say, now, to this guy who I brought up on stage, I said, I- I've never met you before. We're from completely different cultures and languages. We don't eat the same things. We don't like the same things. What I said is, you know, I have way more in common with you than I do with that guy. Because we're brothers in Christ. And that is more important than everything else. Now, let me just encourage you, as the body of Christ, I hope that we live like that is true because when we do, it is a powerful witness to the reality of the gospel. And when we don't, when we live divided, when we don't live out this new identity, it's a deterrent from the reality of the gospel. So don't let all those other things divide you. Let's be focused on Jesus and the grace that he brings. 
Because only when we are transformed is that to experience new life. So let me just end by saying this. All that we've talked about today, all of this starts, all of this newness, this new creation, this, this new uh, way of tra- relating with transformation in, in every area of our life, this starts by trusting in Jesus. This newness doesn't come by, by being a good person, by joining a church or just showing up here every Sunday. It comes when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you are here and you've never done that, let me encourage you. If you want this new life that only Christ can bring, it starts by simply trusting this gospel form we've been looking at for six weeks in the book of, of Galatians, that the way you are made right with God is by putting your faith in Jesus alone. If you have questions about that, if you're not sure if you've done that or what that means, we would love to talk to you after the service. Any of the leaders here at the church would love to talk with you and help you experience that today. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for this series. Thank you for your word in the book of Galatians that has taught us for these last six weeks. And God, we thank you that your gospel is clear, that grace is this beautiful gift that changes our lives. And I pray that our lives would reflect the reality of that gift in very practical ways. God, I pray for anyone here today that doesn't yet know you as their Savior, that hasn't put their faith and trust in you. God, would you draw them to yourself even now. And God, I pray that our lives would reflect your beauty, your love, your unity. That our lives would reflect those things because we are yours. So we thank you, Jesus, and we love you. We ask all this in your name. Amen.